Welcome to More Than Words, a podcast about treating the whole child brought to you by the Reading and Language Learning Center. I'm your host, Tristan, and today I'm joined by licensed psychologist, Dr. Jacqueline Halpern, to discuss a neurodiversity affirming approach to autism slash ADHD support. Hi, Dr. Halpern. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me here today. Absolutely. This is going to be an awesome topic to discuss. Neurodiversity, I feel like, is a phrase that is being thrown around a lot um, Mm -hmm. and not everyone knows what it means. So I think this is going to be awesome to answer some questions for people and help them know how best to support their friends with autism and ADHD. I'm excited to talk about it. Perfect. So tell us about who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, As you said, I'm a licensed psychologist. I am the director of the SOAR program for psychotherapy and testing at Washington Behavioral Medicine Associates. Um, We are an integrative practice. We have psychiatry, we have neuromodulation like TMS, um, neurofeedback, we have therapy and we have testing and we see all ages and a range of needs. Um, And we are a neurodiversity affirming practice. We are Um, highly affirming in terms of LGBTQ needs as well. And we really are um, very socially justice oriented, I would say. Um, And this is really, you know, a large part of what we do. And it's such an interesting practice because we're able to collaborate on a large scale, you know, with with psychiatry and therapists with a range of backgrounds, which is wonderful. Um, We're located in Chevy Chase, Maryland, um, but we also virtually serve DC, Maryland and Virginia. And then some of us are SIPACT approved so we can see people throughout the country, um, which is wonderful. Our website is um, wbma.cc. Perfect. And so I'll put that in the show notes so people can find you guys. Perfect. Thank you. Fabulous. Absolutely. Well, let's hop in. So if people have listened to the podcast before, they have heard this definition, but I always think it is good to start with a basis of what we're talking about. So can you define autism and ADHD for us? Yeah. So autism and ADHD are both a form of neurodivergence. They are different neurotypes. And so the reality is you meet somebody who is autistic or an ADHD and you've met one autistic person or one ADHD right. no two brains are exactly the same but when we're thinking of an autistic person often we're thinking of someone who have differences in the area of how they socialize and communicate um, in their sensory processing in particular the way that their their senses engage with the world um, in their executive functioning those are a lot of the things that we see Um, When we're thinking about ADHD, we're thinking of differences in attention, somebody who can hyper-focus in one area um, and may struggle to focus attention in non-preferred areas. We may see a higher level of um, impulsivity, um, a need to move constantly, um, easy distractibility. It really depends on the person and their particular brain. Yeah. Thank you for both of those um, definitions. I think they're perfectly concise and like just well thought out. So thank you for that. Um, And we're talking about them together, but are they often comorbid? Um, They're often co-diagnosed. And so yes, it's not uncommon to find someone who is both autistic and ADHD, um, which can be, you know, an interesting kind of mix because one part of who they are might crave something very different than the other part of who they are. And they may have to work with those kind of competing internal needs um, and external needs as well. Yeah. So we said neurodiversity affirming approach. Can you also define 
neurodiversity and tell us a little bit about like why it's so important, why it's so talked about. Absolutely. So neurodiversity basically just means that all brains are different, right? Neurodiversity is the range from a neurotypical brain, brain like most people have, to any kind of neurodivergence. And neurodivergence is huge. Often people use the term neurodivergent um, or neurodiverse synonymously with autism and ADHD, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. There's all different kinds of neurodivergence. Okay. So neurodiversity is a group of different brains, um, if you think about it that way, whereas neurodivergence is like one person's difference and every brain that is neurodivergent is going to be a little different than any right. other kind of brain. Um, and so it's important to kind of recognize that we need these different brains in right. the world. Um, we need neurodiversity. If every brain was the same, we wouldn't have much of a functioning society. It'd be no. pretty boring at the very yes. least. Everyone would want to do and be the same person um, and do the same things, be the same person. And so, you know, recognizing that we need different brains, we need different brain styles is super important. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine what it would be like if we all had the same brain. We would never get anywhere. <laughs> it's like another thing that you can, exactly. you know. Exactly. And yeah. so, you know, I think you didn't quite ask this, but when we think of a neurodiversity affirming approach, we're thinking yeah. about really embracing neurodiversity. And so for any individual, you know, what that means is trying to meet them where they are and understand what is their unique brain like and you know how do we help to maximize and highlight their strengths and help to support them in a world that may not always be built for them um you know how do we kind of help them overcome often by changing the environment around them right. um, any difficulties that are created by how the environment is set up because the environment is often set up for the neurotypical brain right. not the neurodivergent brain and too often we're telling someone they need to change to be mm -hmm. more neurotypical Whereas in a neurodiversity affirming approach, we're saying, hey, we want you to be exactly who you are. Right. We want to help you maximize those strengths. And we want to help figure out how do we make the environment easier for you to navigate? So we're often working with families, schools, um, making changes to try to make things much easier for that neurodivergent person so that they can be themselves and they can shine. And we're presuming they are competent, capable people, um, just like a neurotypical person. Right. Yeah. So if if you're looking for that support for your child, what do you look for in a therapist? Or are you looking more for supports at school? Like what does that support start to look like? So it's going to depend on the individual person's needs right. so much, right? And so there's not one great answer for that. And that that's part of the neurodiversity affirming paradigm is somebody doesn't need therapy just because they're autistic or ADHD. Right. They may need it because um, along with that, they're experiencing some form of distress or mm -hmm. something in the environment is tough for them. So we might be looking for, um, you know, kind of traditional psychotherapy, um, or we might be looking at occupational therapy or speech therapy. Right. We'll be looking for, you know, some kind of educational tutoring, changes at school. How do we change the environment at home? It's likely going to be some combination of that. We might be looking at medication management. But we're not going in with an assumption of, hey, we're going to take this path because this is your diagnosis. We've got it stamped on. No, we're right. going to say, who's this individual? What do they need? Yeah. And that's so important. And I, I feel sometimes it's it's not always um, taken into consideration everywhere. So do you have tips for parents to find um, people that they can surround themselves with that are going to 
be part of that neurodiversity affirming approach to their support for their kiddo? Yeah. So, you know, one thing would be to ask the question, what does it mean to you to be a neurodiversity affirming provider? If they think that they've maybe found one or they come across a provider and they're not sure, you know, how do you approach kids? And if the answer is more based in traditional behaviorism, well, we're trying to change their behavior to meet some specific needs someone else has for them, that's probably a sign that they're not particularly affirming. If they're saying, well, we're going to get to know your kid. We're going to meet them where they are. A lot of what we do is going to be child-led. You know, we are going to presume competence. We're going to try to figure out how we can shift the environment for them. We're going to look at them as a whole child and understand their needs in every area. They're more on the right track. Okay. That's helpful because I'm I'm sure our parents have gone, you know, to some provider and they're like, oh, this is gonna be great. They're top, like we've heard a lot of good things about them. And it may be a difference of opinion of how some parents are seeing that what they want their approach to be with their kiddo, you know, like yeah. um, so I think it's important that, you know, they have those those keywords and things that they can look for when they're finding the right support person. Yeah. This approach is really going to center the needs of the child, right? right? And it's going to be about where is this child right now? What does the child want? Not just what the parents and caregivers and educators want, but what does the child want? What does the child need? Where is the child feeling distress? You know, at all, um, because it may be that the child's perfectly content with how they're doing things and, and maybe right. don't need a certain kind of support right now. Um, and we want to get, you know, a child to be part of that process, not have it have things done to them. Right. Uh, and, you know, parents should trust their instincts. You know, a lot of times parents will say, and, and this is often with traditional ABA, which is not you know, considered to be neurodiversity affirming. Mm. Um, you know, I didn't feel comfortable. I felt like my child's needs were being violated. I felt like my child was trying to say no. I feel like things that were important for my child were taken away. Mm-hmm. So if the therapy approach is very rewards and punishment based. It's likely not affirming. And gotcha. if parents are getting that feeling like something's not right here, they should trust that. Right. Yeah. Um, so if they, if they found, you know, good support system, maybe at school or um, wherever they're the caregivers in that sense, what do you recommend that they do at home so that they parents can make sure they're fostering that neurodiverse, like affirming or, or atmosphere in their house? Great question. So first of all, um, it's probably understanding that there is neurodiversity within the home as a whole, that there may be multiple neurodivergencies, um, or maybe there's some neurotypical people and some neurodivergent people. And so it's beginning by starting to kind of recognize, well, all of our brains are different. What do we each need? What are our sensory needs? What are our emotional needs? How can we learn about our brains as a family? Um, And then how can we start to shift the environment to accommodate that? That becomes the hardest when you have like competing sensory or emotional needs. And then you have to figure out how do we make sure this works for everybody? What do we need to put in place? But it's really slowing down to say, you know, what does our child need? Mm -hmm. Um, What can we do to help home be the safe landing space? So again, it's going to be unique to the child. Some kids need, you know, the lights low. Um, They need calm. They need quiet music. Some kids need a lot of movement in the house. So they need swings and trampolines. Um, You know, some kids need to be able to get a lot of physical touch. Some kids need to be able to go and retreat to a quiet, calm space. So it's going to depend on that individual child. But if we can slow down and say, you know, what do they respond well to? Don't they respond well to? When they are dysregulated, which they're likely to be, what, you know, what's calming them down? 
Mm-hmm. Um, that gives us a lot of clues as to what they need. What is revving them up further? Um, and when we're thinking about this dysregulation too, you know, what are all of the things going into that? It may not just be that thing that happened right before, but right. what are all of those things that may be piling up throughout the day that we can look at and explore to make home safer? And we're often looking at something like co-regulation, which is, again, meeting your child where they are, being the calm when they are dysregulated. That doesn't mean you're not going to react initially you know, or show some level of, of upset or concern, but that you come back down and you're modeling coming to a calm space and yeah. you're helping to provide that for your child um, in a moment where they're dysregulated. So they know like, I've got an anchor here. I've got something that I can count on. And you're not looking to correct or change behavior in that moment. You're really helping your child calm. You're coming at them you know, from a place of wanting to support. There may be something to teach later, um, but you're not looking for what's that punishment? What's that consequence? That's not the goal. Right. And so when you've got more than one kiddo in the house, Mm -hmm. what does that look like? Because I'm sure like as a parent and as an adult, you've learned how to co-regulate, right? And you've got that down, but then how do you transfer that to someone else in the house who maybe isn't an adult? (laughs) Great question. So it's not simple and it's going to go wrong a lot. And that's also okay. Right. right? So part of this is allowing yourself to make mistakes and then to make repairs with one or both or several children, um, you know, if need be, if you get it wrong. Um, but it's, it's going to be kind of taking that step back outside of a difficult moment to say, what do each of the kids need? And, you know, what do we need to set up for, you know, kid B, if we know that kid A is likely to have you know, dysregulation in the afternoons. What can we do to make sure kid B has something to do, is supported, is taken care of here, um, right? And it we, we wouldn't be asking the sibling to be the co-regulator. Right. Um, we would be trying to make sure that sibling has something else to do. So we may be sending the sibling out of the room, or we may be taking the child who is having more of a hard time, if that's what it is, out of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, ideally, even if we have, let's say, one neurodivergent and one neurotypical kid, we're going to think about what they each need, because neurotypical kids have needs too. Right. Um, and so if we can set up an environment that's going to be most successful for that child, then we also have more space to support a child who might have higher needs because they're autistic or ADHD or otherwise neurodivergent. Right. Um, so this is kind of a shift, but if you've got kiddos that are going to school and they're talking to their teachers about what they might need, right? Like maybe you've got it kind of sorted at the house and everyone's talked about what their needs are. And now your own child understands that when they go to school, what self-advocacy tips do you give that kiddo? Great question. So I would say first, my hope would be that we would have begun that already so that it's not all on the child, that we as parents, knowing what our kids need based on the conversations we've had, whether those are spoken conversations or using AAC devices or whatever kind of communication that we use, that we can go in and support, particularly for younger kids. Right. Um, you know, Hopefully there's an IEP or a 504 in place or other kinds of supports, and we've developed that relationship with the teachers. Right. But we want to make sure that our kids are armed with um, some way to express their needs, whether Absolutely. that is know, spoken language or again, AAC or some other way to communicate, you know, that they're not okay, um, that they need a break, um, that they need to go to a quiet space, that they need a safe adult. And so 
again, it's going to be unique to the child, what those particular areas of advocacy are going to be. Um, But for example, let's say there is a child who is regularly having accidents in school. Mm -hmm. Well, we want to help that child know, you know, that they can, that they can get permission, right? And we're probably going to help them maybe get a flash pass um, and, you know, make sure all of the teachers know um, that this is a concern because they may struggle with interoception. They may not notice that they need to go to the bathroom until the very last second. So that child needs to know, hey, I've got this pass that I can put down on my desk and I can leave the room at any time. I've got this concrete thing that I can do. Doesn't necessarily need to be words in that moment. Right. Um, or the ability to say to a teacher, stop, you know, no, um, right. or a sign that says that in some right. way, signal um, where the teacher knows, you know, okay, if this child is saying that, they're letting me know something's not okay or right. something, another signal or sign or word that says, I need help. Um, you know, for kids who have more spoken language, it, it may go deeper than that. Um, but we want to think about their individual needs and then help them kind of think through the plan and see, you know, do they want us as parents to communicate certain things to the teachers on their behalf or do right. they feel able to go in and communicate and, you know, do they feel comfortable planning that communication themselves or right. using our help? And that's going to vary child to child. Yeah. I mean, we've got some kiddos that are like, they they know that they have an IEP in place or the, a 504 plan and they've their parents have had that conversation with their teachers but at a certain point they want to be they go into their classrooms like the next year and they're like I can talk to my teacher yeah. um and it's interesting to see what they've come up with to be able to communicate to their teacher their own needs but yeah. sometimes you like the parent needs it, another thing to get to tell their kid like okay well if your teacher like heard this at the beginning of the year, but maybe forgot, you can give them a reminder. Or if you told your teacher at the beginning of the year and they know about it, but they're not giving you the exact right thing, like maybe try this thing. So it's just interesting to hear. And what you're saying, you know, it's all about centering the child's needs, right? And having the dialogue in whatever capacity with the child about those needs to empower them. And it's a give and take, right? It's it's not about what the parents want, but about what the child wants and needs um and the supports that they that they may need or want and then the parents may be coming from the perspective of just more life experience can say hey you know this is something that you could try and and really you know from an affirming approach are you comfortable with this right um is this something that you feel comfortable asking for is this feel feel like something that you feel comfortable advocating for um not because the school is telling you or because i'm telling you but because this is something that you need and want And since we're talking about the classroom and we do have some teachers that listen to this podcast, do you have tips for teachers in a classroom, how they can foster this environment? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, teachers have a hard job already. Yes. Uh, And, you know, it's hard to meet the needs of every child, but I would say like, think about things like lighting, like sound, um, like overwhelming, you know, materials and bright boards, you know, some kids respond really well to that, but others really need a very calm sensory environment. Um, is there a, if, if the whole classroom can't be that way, is there a space where kids can go? Um, are there flexible seating opportunities within the classroom? Do kids have the freedom to go to the bathroom or get a drink or a snack if, if the school allows it and they need to, um, you know, do they have access to fidgets? 
sorts or sensory tools that they can use. Um, you know, classrooms are going to be very successful if there's universal design um, because it will allow kids to access what they need. So, it, it, you know, if kids are given a little bit more freedom right. within the classroom, um, there's a good chance that they'll find a way to meet the needs and teachers can set up that opportunity by allowing these different sensory experiences and trying to create an atmosphere where kids can access whatever it is that they need. They may have to show them what's there, but then the kids can find it. And I would say again, you know, a move away from reward and punishment. That doesn't mean, you know, the class can't earn something fun, Uh, but you know, anything um, that's going to kind of single out a kid or even a whole group of kids, um, you know, because even, even rewards can be punishing. Right. Um, for the kids who can't quite get there, even if they're trying their hardest. Absolutely. And that's something to remember when we put those behavior charts up and we think, oh, they can do it, or they're just competing against themselves. It can still feel really shaming for kiddos. So moving away from those systems, um, when it comes to discipline, really thinking about co-regulation and collaborative and proactive problem solving, like Ross Green recommends, it's a name I'm going to throw out there, um, you're really working with the child to problem solve. And you're looking, does this child already have the skill, right? Is my expectation reasonable or is this unreasonable expectation? And I need to provide more support um, or change what I'm asking for. So again, we're thinking about centering the child and their needs. And of course, in a large classroom, you're not going to be able to do that every second for every child. Um, But the more sensory tools we have available, the more freedom a child has to um, self-regulate or to seek regulation opportunities with an adult, um, you know, or to advocate for what they're needing with spoken language or just with nonverbal cues, um, you know, the the more likely they're going to be successful. Yeah. And do you recommend that parents... Um, step in and say to a teacher, like my child responds really well when they have a fidget spinner or when they have a wobble chair, whatever they're called, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, if parents happen to know what those tools are for the classroom or even what works at home, being able to tell the teachers, because it's just going to make the teacher's job easier, right? right? When we accommodate the kiddos to meet their needs, or when we we can create an environment where, you know, individual accommodations aren't even necessary because of universal design, the kids are sort of just doing it as part of it. Um, and parents can say, hey, this is what, you know, if you have this there for my kiddo, this is likely to help. Um makes their job a lot easier. So yes, a lot of parents, you know, will make like a one sheet and they can do it with their kiddo. If the kiddo wants to participate of here's what works really well. Here's what's really hard for my child too. Here's what might lead to, you know, dysregulation or meltdown or shutdown. Um, These are the cues to kind of know. And if we're seeing a lot of dysregulation, you know, let's figure out why, because it probably means the child's having a hard time with something. Kids are not trying to to be bad. Um, They're not, you know, and I hate to even use that that phrase or that word. Kids do well if they can. Again, Ross Green, Um, you know, and if they can't, it's our job to kind of work with them to figure out why. Right. They're having a hard time. Right. Um, I think there was one more question I had for you. Yeah. Do you have any examples of your... I don't know, two favorite examples for um, fidgets or ways to help children with autism or children with ADHD specifically that you have seen have worked super, super well. Obviously, it depends on the child, but yeah, um, let them doodle. 
right? So many kids naturally go to doodling, right? uh, You know, and often we hear like, no, you know, don't let your, don't (laughs) don't let them doodle in class. Let them doodle in class, right? Maybe they can't doodle all over their paper because then you can't read it. Okay. So make sure there's paper available, but let them, right? And they may not be looking at you. They may be doodling. That doesn't mean they're not listening, right? Um, you know, particularly for ADHD kiddos, but autistic kiddos too, they may need to have something that they're doing with their body, right. um, like doodling to actually aid their focus. And, you know, with, with both autistic and ADHD kiddos, they may not be looking at you, but that does not mean they're not taking it in. Um, so let them doodle is my, my number one and yeah. let them fidget, let them pick up whatever they need to let them touch things, let them move. If you have a kid who's, you know, maybe they can't move in front of the whole class, but you know, they need a spot where they can pace or they can right. circle or they can spin, right? When when kids stim, when kids move, they're doing that to regulate, not because they're trying to dysregulate or distract. So right. my top two would be let them doodle and let them let them move as they need to. Yeah. Um, because it's actually likely going to increase their attention, increase their engagement, um, and help them stay regulated. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, That was my last question for you, but if you have anything else you want to add, we'd love to hear it. Um, The only other thing that I would say is, you know, the best way to get this support and to learn about this is to really center the voices of neurodivergent people, to really take the time to learn and listen from people with life experience. So much of this, um, you know, approach is coming out of hearing the experience of autistic and ADHD and otherwise neurodivergent adults. Um, And many providers are neurodivergent in some way themselves. Um, So, you know, they're out there and you you either want a provider um, who's neurodivergent themselves or who is learning from others who are very directly. Right. Well, thank you. This has been incredibly helpful and I'm glad we got kind of the definition and how we can best support kiddos out there. So thank you so much for being here. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much to the audience for listening. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a little rating and review. It helps other folks find the podcast and we'll chat with you next time.